Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is June 11, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to welcome and discussion members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from today's reading of Plato's short dialogue, Ion, and these are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on these or any of the other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. In our previous three sessions on the symposium, we heard Socrates relate the assertion of Diotima, the mysterious wise woman from Mantinea, that the gods cannot communicate directly with humans, and so they invoke spirits as intermediaries. In the case of the symposium, the spirit was that of love, and the title character of Plato's Ion is an individual moved by a divine spirit, according to Socrates. In Ion's case, the divine spirit has driven him to love the words of Homer, the poet. By profession, Ion is a rhapsode. In ancient Greece, rhapsodes would travel the country delivering dramatic presentations of poetry. Ion declares to Socrates that he is capable only of rhapsodizing on the poetry of Homer, whose words move his soul and the souls of his audiences, while all other poets cause him to fall asleep. Regardless, Ion proclaims himself not only the most knowledgeable of Homer's thoughts and meaning, but fully capable of judging the merits of lesser skilled poets. So if we think of poets more generally as writers who invoke strong passions in their readers, the modern relevance of Plato's Ion might become more clear. While the profession of rhapsode has not survived into modern times, we can perhaps equate individuals like Ion with people today who repeat the words of great writers with the intention of motivating their audiences to one action or another. Words are powerful now, or perhaps more powerful than ever before, amplified by technology that transmits them around the planet at great speed and sometimes from unverifiable sources. But do those who, like Ion, now repeat stirring words, truly have knowledge of the subjects on which they are speaking? Early in the dialogue, Socrates questions if there is any special insight in Homer's words that the other poets do not offer. He says, does Homer speak of any subjects that differ from those of all the other poets? Socrates implies that Homer, like the other poets, draw on memes repeated through time by asking, doesn't he mainly go through tales of war and of how people deal with each other in society, good people and bad, ordinary folks and craftsmen, and of the gods, how they deal with each other and with men? And doesn't he recount what happens in heaven and in hell and tell of the births of gods and heroes? Nonetheless, Ion holds that Homer's words, beautiful as they are, convey knowledge of the subjects on which he wrote. In fact, Ion is so possessed by Homer's words on subjects such as war and leadership that he believes himself to be the greatest general in all of Greece, although he admits that not all skills are as transferable from poetry as the skill of a general, nor can he explain why Athens hasn't requested his guidance as a general. So is Ion's intellect being taken from him, as Socrates suggests, so that he is not in his, quote, right mind? but is instead, quote, beside himself, and acting as a conduit for the gods to communicate with mortals? Is he a master of the subjects on which Homer wrote? Or, as Socrates states, does he lack knowledge of what he speaks? 
So I featured on the cover page of today's notes, which I have here on the screen, excerpts from Plato's Phaedrus, which seem to relate to the subject of the ion. At Phaedrus 244a, Socrates speaks of a state of madness or mania caused by the gods into which people fall. And Phaedrus 275a to b contains the famous discussion between Egyptian king Thamus and Thuth, the Egyptian god of writing, which I thought worth quoting here at the outset of our discussion. Is Ion a victim of what Thamus warns against in the Phaedrus, that writing will, quote, introduce forgetfulness into the soul of those who learn it? They will not practice using their memory because they will put their trust in writing, which is external and depends on signs that belong to others, instead of trying to remember from the inside, completely on their own. You have not discovered a potion for remembering, but for reminding. You provide your students with the appearance of wisdom, not with its reality. Your invention will enable them to hear many things without being properly taught, and they will imagine that they have come to know much, while for the most part, they know nothing. So I thought I would start by reading something fairly close to the beginning of the dialogue. This is from 532b to 533c of Ion. Let me just put that on the screen. Now, in the past few episodes, I've been doing all of the reading myself, just because the sections were written in paragraph format rather than in script format. So this one is written more in script format. So I'd gladly take any volunteers who would like to read either part or I can read it. Um, so if there's anybody who would be interested in reading either Socrates or Ion, I'd be happy to uh, to share. I can read uh, Ion for you. Okay, great. Thanks, Steve. All right, so I'll start with Socrates then. You're superb. So if we say that Ion is equally clever about Homer and the other poets, we'll make no mistake, because you agree yourself that the same person will be an adequate judge of all who speak on the same subjects, and that almost all the poets do treat the same subjects. And how in the world do you explain what I do, Socrates? When someone discusses another poet, I pay no attention. I have no power to contribute anything worthwhile. I simply doze off. But let someone mention Homer, and right away I'm wide awake and I'm paying attention. I, I have plenty to say. That's not hard to figure out, my friend. Anyone can tell you that you are powerless to speak about Homer on the basis of knowledge or mastery. Because if your ability came by mastery, you would be able to speak about all the other poets as well. Look, there is an art of poetry as a whole, isn't there? Yes. And now take the whole of any other subject. Won't it have the same discipline throughout? And this goes for every subject that can be mastered. Do you need me to tell you what I mean by this, Ion? Lord, yes, I do, Socrates. I'd love to hear you wise men talk. I wish that were true, Ion. But wise? Surely you are the wise men, you rhapsodes and actors, you and the poets whose work you sing. As for me, I say nothing but the truth, as you'd expect from an ordinary man. I mean, even this question I asked you, look how commonplace and ordinary a matter it is. Anybody could understand what I meant. Don't you use the same discipline throughout whenever you master the whole of a subject? Take this for discussion. Painting is a subject to be mastered as a whole, isn't it? Yes. And there are many painters, good and bad. And there have been many in the past. Certainly. Have you ever known anyone who is clever at showing what's well-painted and what's not in the work of Polygnotus, who's powerless to do that for other painters? Someone who dozes off when the work of other painters is displayed and is lost and has nothing to contribute, but when he has to give judgment on Polygnotus or any other painter, so long as it's just one, he's wide awake, and he's paying attention, and he has plenty to say. Have you ever known anyone like that? 
Good Lord, no, of course not. Well, take sculpture. Have you ever known anyone who is clever at explaining which statues are well made in the case of Daedalus, son of Metion, or Epius, son of Panopius, or Theodorus of Samos, or any other single sculptor, but who's lost when he's among the products of other sculptors, and he dozes off and has nothing to say? Good Lord, no, I haven't. And further, as my opinion, you've never known anyone ever, not in flute playing, not in cithera playing, not in singing to the cithera, and not in rhapsodizing. You've never known a man who is clever at explaining Olympus or Thamaris or Orpheus or Phemius, the rhapsode from Ithaca, but who has nothing to contribute about Ion, the rhapsode from Ephesus, and cannot tell when he does his work well and when he doesn't. You've never known a man like that? I have nothing to say against you on that point, Socrates. But this I know about myself. I speak Homer more beautifully than anybody else, and I have lots to say, and everybody says I do it well. But about the other poets, I do not. Now see what that means. Well, thank you for sharing that reading. That was the opening, and I have another reading that continues right after this section, so we can go on to that shortly. But I just wanted to open with this and see if anybody has any thoughts on maybe some of the points that I've underlined here, what I thought is kind of key points in this section or anything else that kind of struck you, you know, this idea of if you know that one writer is a really good writer, then Ion is saying that he knows who's also a bad writer. So to know the good, you need to know the bad. And I think Socrates is maybe questioning that. And so I'm wondering uh, whether we see any maybe, maybe modern uh, reflections of this, as I said in the introduction, the profession of rhapsode no longer really exists, but there are people out there who go about repeating the words of, you know, famous writing. Um, and people are indeed moved by these words to do things. And so what does this mean for our understanding of what's written? Here Ion goes about proclaiming the words of Homer to be kind of revelations and very moving. He says later on in the dialogue that when he reads a, a frightening part, the hair stands up on the, on the back of his neck. When he reads a sad part, he starts to cry, and the audience does the same. So, yeah, what do we think of this? Uh, Steve, your thoughts? I really uh, enjoyed this dialogue quite a bit, but uh, I think that Homer missed some really good opportunities with this characterization of Ion as a, uh, you know, very uh, fumbling character and uh, not able to really, uh, you know, he, the characteristics he gives to him are not really that good. You think about one of his other dialogues like Paramedes, where he has a, a real true opponent. So what I think what we have to realize here, Plato is a, a dramatist and he's, creating a story here and the characters he's writing in the story is is somebody that is is not likely to be what this character is i mean this uh a rhapsody at the time uh before you know just a few a hundred years prior there was no uh written language in in greece to speak of all the uh stories and all the uh knowledge was passed orally so the Homeric poets were a big part of that, and that's a big part of society. And obviously, from uh, Plato's other works, including the Republic, he has a low opinion of the poets. 
So he's really, he's he's making Ion is like a straw man. He's a weaker character, and, and but he's really attacking Homer. He's attacking Homer and the poets because uh, it's a, a different way of presenting their material. And he's, he's showing that they have no skill. And you look at Ion, he is a world-class rhapsoder. He's won all these awards and at all these festivals. And it, just think as a comparison of the Greek theater at this time, you know, Asclesius, Sophocles, Aristophanes, you know, these are some of the, what we consider world-class dramatic poets, or excuse me, uh, playwrights of even today. The Greeks would have these large festivals, sort of like what we used to have, the music festivals that, many people would be at for whole weekends and, and they would be judging these people and they were the the some of the best in the world. So, you know, if you really had uh, Ion, you should, he certainly would have an ability to, to judge other uh, poets and to give a general idea of what's going on. But, he, you know, if anybody's a specialist, like say an opera singer, you wouldn't expect them to give you a, a, a full explanation of rock music. I think he's he missed a very good opportunity here by having such a weak character, and I think he's using it as, as a way of attacking the poets uh, without really addressing what the differences may be. And the whole idea that a rhapsoder like Ian would have had been practicing this art from the time he was a little boy. He would have had have been doing this nonstop. He would have been had to be the best at winning all the festivals all the way up. So this is somebody who would be at the top of their game and, you know, could be, you know, one of the uh, the greatest of the era. And uh, just a little long-winded, I apologize for not uh, being more succinct, but I, I would say that a modern-day equivalent, you could say, is that we do have that. If you think about a rave and you think about the DJs at a rave, you're going to have a world-class DJ that could move thousands of people all at once and, and just create an uh, amazing experience. Compare that to somebody that, you know, got a some DJ equipment in their basement and just started doing it compared to somebody that was practicing every bit of music from the time they were little. And they've developed a skill to the point where they can take people into this rhapsody. Uh, so that's the end of my long spiel. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. And and I, I agree. I mean, I, this dialogue really struck me as very interesting, actually. I had never read it before. And there's so many angles, I think, that Plato is exploring here. But, you know, I think what you're saying that Ion is a maybe a bit of a caricature, I think is is maybe right, that maybe there is some way that he could have made Ion a little bit less obvious as to his uh, maybe lack of self-understanding. So, you know, that's something that maybe could have been done better. But the comparison of the Rhapsode explaining poetry or, or depicting poetry, um, I wonder if that's the same as the DJ example that you gave in terms of the poetry contains information about things that are supposed to have happened in the past. And maybe this is something where our modern perspective on poetry is a little bit different, maybe from what they used in ancient Greece poetry for. I wonder if anybody here knows a bit more about the nature of, or, or what what poetry was used for in ancient Greece. Was it more to to convey what were supposed to be historical events, make people think that these things actually happened in the past, 
or that the poets had knowledge of these things of which they wrote. And, and I mean, Homer wrote some pretty fantastic things, but whether Homer had knowledge of them, I guess, is something that uh, Plato will go on to explore in this dialogue. Uh, Darren, your thoughts. Hello, everyone. Thanks to uh, Steve for that comment. It was uh, gave us a lot to think about. And James, you, you gave a great summary <laughs> in the beginning of what was going on in this uh, dialogue. So that was great. Thank you. I want to respond to what uh, Steve said. I think he said a lot of great things. I just maybe want to add a bit to that. Maybe my own angle on that issue. So first of all, like my impression of Ion is that he's a believable character to me. Uh, maybe other people don't like it for maybe other reasons, but like I, I think like he's a believable character, like someone who's just really into a specific art, but maybe a bit um, confused about other things and not knowledge about other things. I think that's that's like a thing in the world. And um, I mean, people who are into philosophy, you know, could be totally oblivious about other things as um, Plato mocks, you know, philosophers themselves in other dialogues, like the like in the middle of Theotetus, who, you know, can knows the concept of soup, but can't make soup and stuff like that. So that's the philosopher. Um, but, you know, Ion's the same way, you know, every, everyone has their sort of own ken and they might be oblivious about other things, except Ion here seems to be at least like he's not confrontational with Socrates and he seems very eager to like understand more about himself so there, there are virtues here maybe virtues the artists you know kind of have he's like tell me more about this weird thing i have you know he's not denying what socrates says he's like you're right like i you're right these other painters and sculptors they don't do this but like i know what i'm capable of and i know what other people appreciate me for you know it's not just his own self subjective perception that he's supposed to be one of the best of these rhapsodes he wants socrates to tell him like then what is my skill all about you know, he's not being that defensive, it seems, or anything like that. Uh, he wants Socrates to help him understand himself. So regarding this other thing that Steve said about poetry, and maybe Plato's attacking Homer here and attacking poetry in general. So I think there is something to uh, what Steve said, because where it comes to reciting poetry, I don't know if it's actually that surprising that Ion... Maybe it's very obsessive Homer, but not others, not other poets. Uh, first of all, because, I mean, Homer is supposed to be one of the best. If you fall in love and become interested in the best of something, like uh, composers or artists, maybe lesser ones just don't excite you as much. I mean, if you've listened to a lot of Mozart, maybe other <laughs> other composers in that, you know, classical era vein just don't grab you. That, that actually seems not too weird to me. Um, so... Maybe Socrates is a bit like flat-footed here in how we approach art and how we come to appreciate art because maybe what Ion's doing isn't that weird. I feel like Plato probably understands this though, but maybe, you know, it's just that Socrates is up to something. And so maybe he's attacking Homer here. But I like, so this is what I think Steve mentioned, but I, I have my own twist on this, which is that maybe, um, so Steve got me thinking, so maybe it's not so much attacking Homer as in trying to get Ion to change his frame of reference with Homer or change his attitude towards Homer because he seems to be so obsessed with Homer that he thinks like Homer tells him everything about the truth of you know various things and his words have you know truth to them and so he if he masters Homer's words on them then he'll master you know whatever Homer's speaking of but maybe by asking these questions it's not so much like putting down like what the poetry offers us in terms of aesthetics 
but maybe he's just trying to provoke he's just trying to get ion to be interested in maybe other poets as well uh, and to look at other poetry for those aspects that socrates is trying to get him to pay attention to and if you start comparing you'll probably start noticing that you know the poets probably don't know that much about you know whatever like charioteering or whatever there are there's differences in which you need to look beyond poetry to figure out so anyway sorry that was long i, I just yeah so maybe the maybe the point is just to shift um ion's frame of reference and 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 just one last thing so ions may be representative of the greeks in general maybe the greeks themselves or athenians maybe betray a kind of enthusiasm for homer that blinds them to the other kinds of knowledge that they need in order to like verify homer not the aesthetic aspects but but you know the scientific sort of things that uh socrates is gonna focus on uh, so maybe on is representative of a general greek attitude towards homer and socrates is just trying to like open up people's approach to homer so they start thinking about other things like philosophy and science and not think like homer is the end all and be all of everything of all wisdom and every and, and so on hmm. you touch on a lot of interesting points there the question of whether or how we appreciate art. And then I guess that made me think of how we distinguish between art and knowledge. Um, and we'll see later on where Ion confuses the words of Homer for knowledge of generalship. So uh, as I said in the introduction, Ion thinks that he's a great general because he's read Homer and Homer presents stories of generals and warfare and leadership. And so that has somehow convinced Ion that he knows the subject of which Homer wrote, but he really just knows the words of Homer. And I guess that's part of the distinction that we need to make, maybe again in the context of technology that I mentioned in the introduction as well, where there are a lot of words out there and sometimes we think that they're the truth when maybe they're just art. And so distinguishing between those, I think, is is good. And and then you also said, you know, this idea of maybe introducing new perspectives. And this is something maybe that we picked up in the symposium too, that maybe there are grains of truth in what each of the poets says at the beginning of the dialogue. Socrates says, well, you know, Homer writes about all the things that the other poets write about. And maybe, maybe you're right that maybe he's trying to get Ion to open his mind a little bit and think about different perspectives and maybe pick up some other grains of truth in there and, and maybe just start doing a bit of a comparison. So yeah, you, you picked up on, on those interesting points. And then the other thing that you said that made me think about myself is how drawn to Plato I am. Um, so maybe I'm a bit of a rhapsode for Plato. Uh, yeah, it's it just made me, it made me reflect on myself. So I hope that in being a rhapsode for Plato, I don't ignore the words of other philosophers, but I'd like to try to make a common connection, I guess, so. Anyway, so those are those are great points. Thank you. And uh, Steve. Yeah, I think that the point Darren made was was excellent that uh, the self-reflection, I, I think that um, if you look at it, that Plato might be showing himself doing self-reflection. I mean, the same criticisms that Socrates is laying against uh, Ion, they could be laid against Plato. I mean, what does he do except you know he's a writer. He's a pro he's a prose writer instead of a poet reciter. So all is he doing is writing down the words of Socrates. And what does he know? You know. So it, all of these, you know, criticisms can be be laid on him. But I think what what the point that uh, I haven't seen brought out in the dialogue was what the real art of 
the rhapsoder or the writer is, is like, it isn't that, you know, that you know every art that you talk about. Your art is that you're able to summarize that and share that with people in a way that they could come to understand it. Like, say, uh, Julius Caesar. I, th I think that the majority of the people in the world today, our idea of, of what Julius Caesar is, is probably from what Shakespeare wrote about. You know, that's, you know, very powerful. And I think that, again, he's being, Plato's being self-reflective, that the art of poet or prose writer is a art of uh, condensing and communication uh, of, of ideas, not having necessarily complete mastery. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair uh, reflection. And I guess maybe, you know, to what Plato does with Socrates is, and I think, you know, most people would say that what Plato puts in Socrates' mouth is completely made up. But I guess in terms of putting what Socrates says in terms of questions rather than statements, maybe that's kind of a difference in terms of the presentation of information. Socrates is not saying that this is this way because of that and uh, all that. He's, he's just going around asking questions. So maybe there's a bit of a difference there. But yeah, I, I think what you said is is interesting and worth bearing in mind. Um, I think we'll see later on, and I have some sections to read about this, where I think one of the points that's being made in this dialogue is that Ion is not possessed of knowledge. And, and so they use this example of Ion thinks that he's the best general, which I have in the last reading. But, uh, you know, I think that's there to show that Ion doesn't really have knowledge of what being a general is, but Ion is possessed by a divine spirit. So that, I think that's really one of these very interesting parts of this dialogue, this idea of being possessed by a spirit. So Ion is captivated by this art, but because he's kind of possessed by the spirit or taken over by the spirit, he's maybe not able to distinguish between art and reality. And that's a, an issue that we can maybe explore. And again, maybe a connection to our modern situation with technology. So yeah, thanks for raising that. I think that's very important. And Darren. So I liked what Steve said about maybe this is also a kind of self-reflection on Plato's part, this dialogue um, and the stuff we've been discussing. But I, I think I'm going to save my comment for about that specific thing later. I think it, it ties into, I think, what, James, you're about to, you want to, you want us to get to the next section of dialogue about the magnets and the rings and Plato just writing, you know, through Socrates or Socrates' words. So I, I think that's much more relevant to that section. So I'll just save it for that um, when we have the reading on the table. But regarding the uh, art of the rapso, their art in general, I do feel like what Socrates is saying is something interesting and true about science itself. I mean, presumably, if you're able to judge on something in science, you have to know about where it goes wrong, where what's bad science and good science in order to tell what is true in science. I, I feel like that's at least much more true. I don't know if it's the only thing that's going on in science, obviously, but it's much more true for the science and the technical arts. Um, but for like aesthetic arts, I think Steve's critique was much more true um, and is, is correct. So I think understanding art is different and it's possible to be like very invested in one artist or, you know, one poem or whatever, or one poet, especially, you know, if it's the greatest, maybe Ion's just a very extreme example of this. Maybe it's never that extreme, but at least I, I think there's truth to what Steve was saying about art. And I don't think Plato himself is blind to this. I think, again, I think he's like trying to 
show us that there are elements of science and technical arts in aesthetic arts like poetry and he's like almost like you know <laughs> like poking us to notice that and and Ion's just too confused to make that distinction you know he, he thinks that he doesn't actually know anything about the po poetry now when mm -hmm. he might but he, he but it's he's attuned to the aesthetic dimension rather than the but he just doesn't have the vocabulary to you know talk back against Socrates he's just a rap so he's 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 not gonna make making these distinctions and concepts as you know we know from the sophist the dialogue you know, know. making distinctions and concepts is like a main thing in, in philosophy th that we have to learn i guess is i said this last time but ion is sort of um maybe just representative of the greeks attitude towards poetry in general and socrates or plato in general is just trying to get us to uh, or get the greeks to <laughs> you know recognize a, a kind of kinds of flaws in this attitude and so i i just my connection to symposium so i, I said at the last meeting that i felt like alcibiades the last speech on love in the symposium like he's sort of representative in his like push and pull attitude towards Socrates was sort of representative of maybe a kind of ancient Greek attitude and how also Abadis even admitted he wanted to kill Socrates because um, it makes him feel bad about himself. Maybe Ion himself here is also that kind of vehicle too, a kind of a representative of an ancient Greek attitude in general, but you know, towards a very different subject. That's interesting, actually. So if, if Ion's a caricature, he's a caricature of a larger class of people, I think is what you're saying. That's very interesting. Yeah, um, or, or or just a general ancient Greek attitude toward yeah. Homer as like maybe yeah. overvalorizing him and thinking he's like, mm. the, you know, the end all and be all of everything and wisdom and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah certainly. Yeah, interesting. And uh, we do see Plato talking uh, against Homer or not favorably to towards Homer through many of his dialogues. So it's not surprising, I guess, that it turns up here as well. Just quickly, so on on like my take, it maybe it's not so much that Plato's like against Homer, but maybe that he's against a certain attitude towards Homer, right. like an overvalorization right. of Homer. So it so the va validity of the aesthetic sort of seeps into science and other stuff too, mm -hmm. that where it should not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I think we'll I think we'll maybe Excuse see that me. in the words here. Yeah. So so thank you. And we'll go to Mario. Yeah, excuse me. The way I understand it, it is, and as we will see later in the dialogue, it's not about Ion or about the Greeks or about any attitude. It's just, as we will see later on, he's just saying that poetry and rhapsody is very unique and it's different than paintings or sculpture. It's very unique that it requires divine intervention. And later on, we'll see that these uh, rhapsodes or uh, poets, they represent truth. And later on, you will give the example of a magnet that will attach to something like mm -hmm. iron and there will be a chain. So it's just about poetry itself. It's very unique and it requires divine intervention. This is why a person becomes obsessed by this, for example, unique style or unique poet or... Uh, so that's it. I don't think it's about Ion himself or the Greeks or uh, it's about a divine intervention from gods uh, that makes it unique and different to paintings and sculptures and stuff like that. Yeah, I think, and you said the, the word they're representing truth or, or people who think that maybe the poets represent the truth. And actually in this section, this next section that I'll read, which is just a continuation of the previous section, exactly. it actually ends with 
Socrates observing that Ion is a representative of representatives. So he says yeah. that the poet is the representative of the this divine uh, spirit that has overtaken them. And Ion, as a representative of the representative poet, is also possessed by this divine spirit. So there's this chain of divine spirits intervening here, which is really interesting. So, yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Yes. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's a good point where I can read this next section then. Uh, this is from 533b to 535a. And uh, this is Socrates speaking here. So this is just a continuation exactly from where I left off before. Uh, so Socrates says, I do see Ion, and I'm going to announce to you what I think that is. As I said earlier, that's not a subject you've mastered, speaking well about Homer. It's a divine power that moves you, as a magnetic stone moves iron rings. That's what Euripides called it. Most people called it Heraclean. This stone not only pulls those rings, if they're iron, it also puts power in the rings, so that they in turn can do just what the stone does, pull other rings, so that there's sometimes a very long chain of iron pieces and rings hanging from one another. And the power in all of them depends on this stone. In the same way, the muse makes some people inspired herself, and then goes through those who are inspired, a chain of other enthusiasts is suspended. You know, none of the epic poets, if they're good, are masters of their subject. They are inspired, possessed, and that is how they utter all those beautiful poems. The same goes for lyric poets, if they're good. Just as the Corybantes are not in their right minds when they dance, lyric poets, too, are not in their right minds when they make those beautiful lyrics. But as soon as they sail into harmony and rhythm, they are possessed by Bacchic frenzy. Just as Bacchus worshippers, when they are possessed, draw honey and milk from rivers, but not when they are in their right minds, the soul of the lyric poet does this, too, as they say themselves. For of course, poets tell us that they gather songs at honey-flowing springs, from glades and gardens of the muses, and that they bear songs to us as bees carry honey, flying like bees. And what they say is true. For a poet is an airy thing, winged and holy, and he is not able to make poetry until he becomes inspired and goes out of his mind and his intellect is no longer in him. As long as a human being has his intellect in his possession, he will always lack the power to make poetry or sing prophecy. Therefore, because it's not by mastery that they make poems or say many lovely things about their subjects, as you do about Homer, but because it's by a divine gift, each poet is able to compose beautifully only that for which the muse has aroused one. One can do the dithrams, another encomia, or one can do dance songs, another epics, and yet another iambics, and each of them is worthless for the other types of poetry. You see, it's not mastery that enables them to speak the verses, but a divine power, since if they knew how to speak beautifully on one type of poetry by mastering the subject, they could do so for all others also. That's why the god takes their intellect away from them when he uses them as his servants, as he does prophets and godly diviners, so that we who hear should know that they are not the ones who speak those verses that are of such high value, for their intellect is not in them. The god himself is the one who speaks and gives us voice through them to us. The best evidence for this account is Tinicus from Chalcis, who never made a poem anyone would think worth mentioning, except for the praise song everyone sings, almost the most beautiful lyric poem there is, and simply, as he says himself, an invention of the muses. In this more than anything, then, I think the God is showing us, so that we should be in no doubt about it, that these beautiful poems are not human, not even from human beings, but are divine and from gods, that poets are nothing but representatives of the gods, possessed by whoever possesses them. To show that, the god deliberately sang the most beautiful lyric poem through the most worthless poet, 
Don't you think I'm right, Ion? Ion says, Lord, yes, I certainly do. Somehow you touch my soul with your words, Socrates, and I do think it's by a divine gift that good poets are able to present these poems to us from the gods. Socrates says, and you rhapsodes in turn present what the poets say. Ion says, that's true too. Socrates says, so you turn out to be representatives of representatives. Ion replies, quite right. So that was the section on this divine possession and this representation and this very kind of strange, almost cosmology about these iron rings and the gods sort of taking possession of one person with these beautiful words uh, and that person then transmitting those beautiful words to other people. And they kind of get caught in this chain, almost as if there's a magnetic attraction between them. And this magnetism, I think maybe Socrates is implying relates to the soul. Maybe the soul has some sort of magnetic properties, one soul for another. I don't know what you think about that. It's a very interesting presentation. I hadn't thought of that magnetic kind of connection before. I'm not sure anyone else has made it that way. I've never heard of it presented that way. Steve. I read um, Stanford Philosophy Encyclopedia about this. They had an interesting comment on this. They talk about that the image of the rings and the magnets is slyer than it appears. Well, the analogy rests transparently on one feature of magnetism, the transfer of attraction. It also smuggles in a second feature, Socrates describes iron rings hanging in straight lines or branching. Although ring, each ring may have a single ring dependent on it, no ring is said to hang from more than one. But real rings hang in another way. All the rings clump together against the magnet. No one ring clings to two or three above it. Why does Socrates do this? And, and they put forth several ideas. I don't know if anybody's played mm -hmm. magnet filings, but it's, it's almost impossible to get them straight like that. They do cling together. And what the, what they go on to suggest is that perhaps uh, Socrates is putting in the hierarchical structure that all of this is, all the power comes from the muse or the god or the god figure, and it, it's all hierarchical. And uh, But in real life, there's a synergy between people when information is disseminated. It's like if uh, a muse, the example they use, if a muse has a doctor give a... Uh, a lecture and somebody gets some insight from that lecture, that uh, information isn't just connected straight back to that to the doctor. There's in interaction between all the different people, and and uh, that, that's how our knowledge grows through that symmetry. So I thought that was an interesting point that they brought up. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's very helpful to understand that analogy of the iron rings and the stone in the middle that. Socrates says all the power in, in all of them depends on this stone in the middle. And, and I think that, you know, the word attraction that you use, you know, this, this attraction and the hierarchical structure, I guess, you know, the hierarchy starting at the gods, which is the eternal or the immortal, uh, and then filtering through the human, uh, the human representatives, uh, with the poet being kind of the first level representative, and then the audience of the poet being the second level representative, and I guess that's maybe an interesting way of seeing art. I mean, certainly some people do seem to be possessed of extraordinary capabilities in their art. And again, I guess when we look at the art or hear the art, we just need to be able to distinguish that that extraordinary ability may not be a mastery of the subject, but 
uh, more an appreciation for the art, you know, some sort of divine appreciation for the art. And I think that's where Ion maybe gets into some trouble in this dialogue where he is unable to distinguish between the art and mastery of, of knowledge. So when you mentioned knowledge and that synergy between people in generating knowledge, maybe that's the idea of dialectic where, you know, there needs to be this testing of words before we can accept them as the truth. And maybe if there's that magnetism, we're not testing, maybe we're just relying on that magnetic property to hold it together and to think that it's true when we should be testing the words among ourselves. So maybe that's one of the things maybe that Socrates is trying to say here in a very maybe roundabout way. Darren. Uh, this passage here is just so key, right? In this dialogue. And um, there's actually, I like, I think there's so much packed into here and so much of value and of interest. I think the description of, what it is to create poetry here, how someone has to like put their intellect aside and sort of almost be like out of their minds in order to make poetry. I feel like that's a real thing too. <laughs> that seems to capture, um, I think the experience of making a lot of different, for, for people who make art um, or attempt to maybe, <laughs> I, I think that captures a real experience. Like um, if your intellect is too in the way, it like somehow doesn't like, you can't tap into the creative forces. So I feel like it's capturing something that's like phenomenologically true here. And maybe this is uh, related to Steve's remark about the hierarchical structure. The magnet thing can be interpreted in so many different ways, right? <laughs> like I, I think it could be problematic on in some interpretations and maybe it's more problematic when it's applied to like, science or medicine or other technical arts like that but regarding creativity or inspiration at least i feel like maybe there's something to this um linear ring structure and, and it comes in i feel like the sense of authorship that's implied by this ring metaphor um so he says that you know they or at least the rhapsodes and then you know the the poet they are not the ones who are speaking the verses but because it's not their intellect that's doing it. They're putting that aside. They have to put that aside in order to do this really well. But it's like other beings or gods who are speaking through the vehicles of the human being. Um, I, I find it such a fascinating view of authorship. Like this is another thing that's really fascinating about this section is this view of authorship that the authors are not really the authors. They're just representatives of something of higher forces speaking through them. And okay, maybe like when you sort of articulate it in those almost like, as you mentioned, the word cosmological or maybe uh, metaphysical terms, it's weird. But I think like phenomenologically, like from the experience of the person like creating art, I, I think that's can be real in a sense. Like they're not the, like they're sort of just channeling something um, through them and they can only do it by putting aside their intellect in order to create like beautiful music or beautiful poetry. I just feel like those things are of interest. And insofar as that experience it is experienced like that or can be experienced like that. So there is a kind of hierarchical sort of line in a way. And maybe just uh, went a long time again. So just a quick final comment. So maybe there's ways in which I feel like even technical arts, maybe philosophy itself can be like this too. Because like, I'm thinking like of mathematicians who make great discoveries. In a way, they're not really the author of a proof. Because the proof exists in some like, abstract mathematical space already mathematical reality <laughs> i mean you're not like literally like creating something out of you know 
ex nihilo when you come up with a mathematical proof oftentimes like or maybe when you're just like working on lower when you're just studying math and trying to prove something yourself like there's an aha moment who knows where that comes from phenomenologically it feels like it's coming from something else and then it's also the case that it's not really like you're not really authoring the proof per se it's like you're just like discovering it or something's being channeled through you where you discover that so anyways i think it's very true what the experience of being described is very true for uh, like creative arts but maybe there's something to it for even the technical arts and sciences interesting idea about authorship there and it just uh, makes me think of this one little phrase here in the section where he says they sail into harmony and rhythm and are possessed by bacchic frenzy so maybe there's some sort of harmonics going on between souls in terms of transmitting some sort of form of beauty or something like that. You know, the, the example used with mathematics, I mean, mathematicians are looking for beautiful uh, proofs, you know, the, the more simple, the more beautiful it is. And so maybe there's something about this idea of harmony and the soul kind of captivated by some sort of harmony of imagery that it's maybe not able to master, but it expresses it in this poetic form and people are moved by it. So yeah, a very interesting idea about authorship there. I, I appreciate that. So um, we'll go to Mario and then Ernest. Yes. So uh, just a small point. I want to add uh, something. The, the idea of magnetism is very beautiful because it's very symbolic because magnetism is invisible. Like you see its effect you don't know, even physicists are still, until now, they don't know the underlying phenomena that is going on. Okay, they, they can explain it, of course, uh, but until now, we are still uh, amazed by, by this underlying and invisible uh, phenomena. So it makes, it's very related to the inspiration, for example, we see its effect, but how how it happens like what is going on how, how you have this intuition for example and here comes the idea of stone and attraction and uh, because you will get like iron is uh, attracted to homer and homer is attracted to this maybe divine cause for example or truth or mm -hmm. yeah so that was just a small point i wanted to add about mm -hmm. the invisibility of magnetism which is which makes uh, which i like so much Mm -hmm. And that's a great point. Thank you for raising that. It's, uh, I mean, magnetism, you can observe the effects, but you can't observe the phenomenon itself. And sometimes it's the unobservable, the invisible, that's really important in this. And that's a, that's a great point to draw. I think that's, uh, and then you also asked how we get the intuition for these things. So how did Homer get the intuition or the inspiration for his great words? What What kind of caused that in Homer? Or, you know, what causes the inspiration in a Da Vinci or, you know, any of these great artists that, uh, you know, whose work is still celebrated today. And, yeah, I think that's that's a very yeah. good point to make. Yeah, thank you. Um, we'll go to Ernest and then Steve. Yes, uh, you have to uh, understand that in ancient Greece, they have certain belief that you can be specialist in one category. You can be either a doctor or a general. You cannot have knowledge of both. And that's what Homer represents. He has extraordinary knowledge of different skills. And that in ancient Greece was uh, associated with gods, that only gods can know uh, multiple uh, skills. 
uh, and that's when later on Pythagoras were expert in music and mathematics, they associated him with uh, that he is uh, some kind of god or spiritual thing. That, so that's why they were amazed at the poetry of Homer or Hesiod, that they had multiple skills. And that's what they believe it's divine. You cannot have that knowledge. Uh, one person can have multiple knowledge of multiple skills. And that's kind of uh, reflected in that uh, speech. That's it, yeah. yeah. That's very helpful. Thank you for that background. That's interesting. You know that uh, Homer and the other poets present all of these skills in their poetry. And yeah, I guess to have so many or, or to have knowledge of so many skills, it, it's almost godlike or, or at least inspired by some spirit. And to think back again about the symposium, when Diotima said that the gods don't interact directly with the mortals, they have to work through spirits, these intermediaries. And so maybe maybe some inter in intermediary has given some sort of representation of these skills to Homer, but is the representation the same as the mastery of the skill? And I think that's what Socrates is calling into question here. So that, that's great. That's really helpful. Thank you. Uh, Steve. Yeah, I thought those points were very good also. And uh, so I have two points to make. One is about the issue of mastery versus inspiration. I think that, you know, the people we're talking about, again, I, th you, I think you can't uh, undervalue the amount of mastery or skill they need in order to do this. For somebody to be of uh, its ability to have uh, impact that we're talking about it 2,000 years later, a modern example would be, say, uh, a Taylor Swift or an opera singer, you know, could get inspired and, you know, and be able to sing something that makes people cry. But you're going to have somebody that gets drunk at karaoke night and, you know, they're going to feel just as inspired, but that they're, they're not going to be uh, an impact. So mastery, and, and, and I don't know who said it, but somebody... I think maybe they say Leonardo, I don't know, but that they say that what is their art or what is their skill? It's 95% perspiration and 5% inspiration. So you, you have to do the work in order to, to be able to, you know, to, to play, you know, it's, if you don't have the years of blood, sweat and tears, you're not going to be uh, impactful. It's like a, a, somebody that's drunk in a bar getting up and spouting their ideas compared to somebody that's you know, gone to, to school for 20 years and studied rhetoric and philosophy and science and can speak at a, a TED symposium and have, uh, you know, tens of millions of people watch what they say. There's there's a big difference in that. And the second point was with uh, what Darren was saying, I, I uh, really resonated with his connection to uh, the sciences with this also, with mathematicians having uh, uh, inspiration the person that discovered the benzene atom, it's like they had, a, you know, they were a world-class scientist, but, you know, they could not figure out the structure. And then one night they had a, a dream of a snake swallowing its tails. And then the next day they realized that was the shape of the atom. So, hmm. and it's the idea is when we're saying it's not coming from you, it's coming perhaps from the spirits of the gods, but that's depends on how we're defining you. If we're defining you as the self, the uh, ego, 
that's one thing. But the, the you, it could be a, a much bigger thing. It can be the whole uh, the whole system, you know. So we might not necessarily see that as our our conscious narrative self, but it might be a deeper part of ourself. It doesn't necessarily come from an external source of godness, which uh, you know could be you know influenced by uh, the translators that were all translating this. Were all Christian uh, translators that believed in uh, God, so it, we don't know how much their point of view is influencing how the translations come down to the, to us. But just saying that the that inspiration can come from a deeper part of one's own, one's own self without appealing to a uh, an outside God force, per se. That's really interesting, actually. And it makes me think of, um, again, what Plato said, or what Socrates said in the Philebus, which is that the universe itself has a soul. And when you talked about how you define you from the system, maybe what's Socrates is saying here, maybe you're right about the translation that the word gods maybe is more like the universe and uh, the individual souls are part of the universal soul. And so maybe it's what's happening is that there's some a discussion between the universal soul and the individual soul going on here in this kind of possession that they're talking about. That's maybe one thought there. Uh, you mentioned to the uh, discovery of the benzene atom, which was really interesting, kind of arising as a thought experiment. And it makes me think of Einstein's, I think it was when he was a teenager, he was imagining what it would be like to ride on a light wave, which you can't, no human can do, but he was just kind of picturing what the structure would be if he were able to transport himself on it. And that led to a whole series of thoughts, which unlocked all of this inspiration. So there's definitely, I guess, something that is there that kind of transcends the individual experience, uh, some kind of universal connection maybe that they're talking about. But yeah, maybe the word gods is problematic here in terms of a translation. I don't know. It would be interesting to see the original Greek and, and how that's phrased. So thanks. And Mario. Yes, I want to answer Debbie because she asked if it is art uh, one second, she's saying like, uh, if art comes solely from from the gods, in my point of view, the way I understand it from the text, it's not art, it's only poetry, because he's making difference between poetry and sculpting and paintings. So I think not art, but maybe art, but here in this text, the way I see it, he's focusing on poetry only and he's saying this one comes from from gods. Because, for example, when he talks about sculpture, he says, well, take sculpture. Have you ever known anyone who is clever at explaining which steps are well made in the case of blah, 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 but who's lost when he's among the products of other sculptors and he dozes off and has nothing to say? And Ion replies, I haven't. And they agree on this idea. Like, for example, you can explain other sculptors if you know, for example, one sculpture, but in the case of poetry, you cannot, you get obsessed by only one uh, poet. I, I think what's interesting too about those sections when he talks about the sculptures, for example, is that when he asks Ion if he knows anybody like that, there's kind of irony, I think, going on there where Ion is kind of himself like that. And, and the, I think the point that Socrates is trying to make with those comparisons is that to know some practice like poetry or art 
to know whether it's good or to know whether it's bad, you kind of have to know the whole range. Whereas Zion's saying that he really just only knows Homer, and yet he thinks that he knows the whole range of what the other poets are talking about. So, but I mean, certainly the, the dialogue is about poetry. The, the dialogue is actually, I would expand it to really say the dialogue is about words and the power of words. You know, poetry is not as powerful in modern society, I guess, as it was in ancient Greece. But certainly words are powerful, as I exactly. said. Exactly. Yeah. It's about yeah. word. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, th thank you for that. That's a helpful focus, I think, on this. Yeah. Uh, Darren. Just to respond to um, Ariel's point about this, there does seem to be a distinction with um, the other arts here. Although the focus of the dialogue is on Ion specifically, and as I've said before, I think Ion might be representative of a general attitude. And, and insofar as Ion's obsessed with Homer, I think it might be even more, the dialogue is actually what I've been sort of saying before. It might even be more specifically about Homer rather than like rhapsody or poetry per se. And, and so it's a commentary on Homer. And I think if you dive into that, I think you could even say it's about maybe well, one of the things you could say is that it's about the maybe the highest sort of aesthetic or artistic accomplishments because Homer is like recognized, at least in their culture, and I think in ours too, but definitely in their culture as, uh, you know, being sort of one of this greatest artists in a way, creators. So where does that come from? I think the dialogue might be about that. I think I think it's a general, it could be seen as general commentary on Homer specifically just because of the influence of, and Homer comes up in other Plato's dialogues, right? So there is a kind of obsession about him. But um, as I said, maybe it's about, it's maybe like poking holes in the sort of Greek valorization of Homer. And uh, just to tie back in the theme with words, I think part of what is dangerous about the poetic arts is that it does use words and words can do a lot of things. <laughs> they can represent a lot of things, including things like the nature of the universe and other arts and sciences maybe it doesn't actually know anything about it's put into beautiful beautiful words about how you you know do lots of technical complicated things in medicine and all that but does it really know <laughs> you know it, it, it might be eloquent but does it really know those things and i think when we over valorize someone like homer or maybe when the athenians do like they're confusing you know plato is basically a cultural critic right so maybe he's like criticizing this attitude and it's particularly dangerous when the artist is a poet just because words can be so malleable and and sort of seep into other domains and maybe which it doesn't have a right whereas like you know it's hard to make music about about medicine or like you know make a sculpture about medicine or whatever i mean i don't even know how that would and you know and fool people that way but it's easy if you're a poet because you're using words and you can fool people into thinking they know something when they don't actually they're just experiencing the aesthetic aspect of it yeah so maybe it's about some of these more specific things even uh, even more specific than like rhapsody or poetry. Interesting comment where you said that uh, Plato is almost a cultural critic, which I think is very interesting. And maybe we can extend that to our culture now. You know, as you were talking, I thought of, I actually read it yesterday in the New York Times about how powerful words can be. So there is a lawyer in New York who is up for professional discipline because he recently used ChatGPT, the AI software to put together words for a motion that he presented uh, to the court. And it turns out that the computer, the words that the computer used were, they were powerful words. They, apparently they, they were good enough and well-presented enough that it convinced the lawyer who thought that they were true. 
but in in terms of what the cases that this uh, AI quoted were just fictitious, absolutely fictitious. So the judge is looking at this and he says, these aren't real cases. Why are you quoting these? And so the lawyer is now being disciplined. So, you know, words can, I guess it's, it's all in the presentation. Words can really make people think that they're true. And if, if they don't go to the extent of checking them and doing a little bit of a dialectic and, you know, confuse professionally trained people like a, like a modern lawyer. So that, that's why I thought that section from the Phaedrus where famous says you've not discovered a potion for remembering but for reminding you provide your students with the appearance of wisdom not with its reality i thought that that was very relevant to this dialogue and i think relevant to modern times so yeah i mean thanks for pointing that out can i just make a very quick very very quick comment about uh, about how homer is also representative of you know what is considered maybe the greatest of the uh, artists and how you know maybe really great art requires this kind of divine or, or or seems to be divinely inspired so i just recommend uh people look up this artist named andre valencia um he's like 10 years old he creates absolutely amazing art and he, he's already making like millions of dollars so just like look at andre i can put in the chat the name and so i i think those examples that steve was saying were like correct maybe for maybe lesser talented artists, but I think we're the very greatest one. Like where did Mozart get his amazing ability? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's yeah. Mozart was the one that came to my mind as, as soon as you mentioned the young artist, because I mean, Mozart was incredibly young when he composed is the most incredible things that we're still listening to today. So yeah, no, very good example. Uh, we'll go to Ernest and then Steve. Uh, Darren, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, I agree with you. It's about, uh, uh, Later, it's in conversation with Homer because uh, he, he cannot understand how Homer knew about what God's interactions, what they are talking between themselves, which is presented in Homer's Iliad. There are uh, so many divine interceptions that only muses can dispense to Homer. Otherwise, no human person can know without divine interception. So that's what he was believing, that it's not his skill, because he no way he could knew what Zeus on Olympus could tell to Hera or Aphrodite and stuff like that. That's why it's not a skill, it's somebody has to tell him. That's mm. it. So. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Yeah, the, the number of divine intercessions in Homer's works, I guess, defy the imagination, I guess. And so one wonders whether that's an example of the statement that as long as a human being has his intellect in his possession, he will never, he will always lack the power to make poetry or sing prophecy. And maybe that's, you know, having your intellect is, okay, I've never seen a divine intercession or I've never seen that many divine intercessions. And so if I'm just writing according to my intellect, I wouldn't write that. But when the intellect is put aside and I start imagining, maybe maybe this is a, these words are really an example of what it is to imagine. And some people are maybe more powerful at imagining and reaching out to that sort of universal spirit or the universal soul uh, in terms of their ability to imagine. Um, so yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. But in Greek thought, they believe it's actually happened. It's not imagination. It's true events yeah. that God yeah. went through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, they believed in Zeus. They believed in Olympus and you know, all of that. Uh, that That's key. And and that, again, that's, I think, the importance in being able to distinguish between 
art and reality or, or, you know, myth and reality is to know that distinction and, and to question, I guess, what is told by these, you know, we, we put these great words in front of you and people maybe not as educated as the rhapsode might think that because the words are so beautifully presented that they have to be true. And in this case, we'll see in the next section that I'll read where Ion thinks that he's a general. So, and again, it may be a characterization, but I think we maybe know people who fall for powerful words without questioning. So I think there are modern examples of that for sure. So thanks. And, and Steve. A couple of comments on, um, I still think the, the example you gave about Mozart is, well, I mean, part of that is is true that he had an amazing talent, but his father was actually uh, one of the greatest music teachers of the ages. And um, he started training uh, Mozart uh, at a very, very, at, you know, as soon as he could start playing. So it's, it's definitely he was a prodigy. But if his father hadn't been the great music teacher, uh, we probably never would have heard of him. Mozart's sister was actually very accomplished also at playing. And, and uh, his father had many other students that uh, had great careers. But, uh, you know, it's a nature nurture thing, obviously, is. There, there might have been some gene uh, potential that from his father being a great musician also besides being a great teacher. And as far as uh, divine inspiration, I think of this still as just a, a storytelling uh, feature. You know, George Martin has a lot of divine inspiration about all the characters in Game of Thrones and what the gods and, uh, you know, different things are, are, are doing. So that's a, a dramatic writing you know, similar to like the stories in the Bible. So, and the other uh, point was about how um, at this period of time, I think it's very important to see that it was a transition from one form of communication to another. It was going from oral communication where knowledge was passed on orally. There was no, no writing. And things had to be written in a poetic way in order for people to memorize them. Uh, when you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, things are repeated over and over again in the same, you know, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, is the son of so-and-so, and so on. And it's, you know, it had had to be created in a way that was, was available for people to memorize and to pass on. So now with writing... Uh, yes, I think that what Darren said is absolutely right. Uh, Plato's being a, a, a critic of the the old form of communications because you know that was a higher hierarchical form that he's trying to break into, and the the people that were you know were using Homer poets as their means of uh, understanding the world. He's trying to show them some new ways to look at it. So I think that. The change in media, and media is very important to keep in mind that that's was what was in the process of happening at this time. That's a that's a great observation, actually, and thanks for that. I hadn't thought about the the memory of people listening to the poetry was enhanced by the poetry itself, and I think that's a, an important point, I guess, to bear in mind as you say, if they're going from an oral tradition to a written one, maybe this art was a, a memory tool that help people to understand. And, and, you know, you said it's a way of telling stories, which I think is important because I think, you know, maybe we're always telling each other stories. Maybe this is a way we have of trying to understand the world around us, to, to put stories to it, to put analogies to it, 
And maybe it's through that that we arrive at some sort of shared understanding. And maybe what Socrates is talking about is how we test that shared understanding, whether we believe in one source or whether we have multiple sources that we should be using to understand that. So I think that was uh, powerful, that, that storytelling idea and the idea of communication and that memory device in poetry, I think is perhaps very powerful. And certainly Ion, in sections I don't think we'll have time to read, but he he does show a good command of memory of everything that Homer's written. Uh, and that was important back then. Um, so, uh, Darren. I want to get back to an issue I said I would pull off earlier, uh, which is uh, that maybe this dialogue is also a kind of self-reflection on Plato's part. I think someone brought up this comment. And so it's related to the sections. I guess I'll just talk about this here. I noticed that for other talk about magnetism of souls, and I think maybe this just maybe on the next page, it talks about how the God is pulling through people's souls. And I thought it was interesting, though, in this same section that Ion, after listening to Socrates, says that Socrates touches his soul <laughs> with his beautiful yeah. words. And at, there, at other points, he talks about Socrates having beautiful words himself and how, you know, he's being moved by Socrates. Although we know in general, Ion's very <laughs> capable of being moved, but at least here in this case, he's being moved by Socrates doing philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I personally think there is a connection with uh, Plato is doing a kind of remark about philosophy too, um, at least is what I- I'm seeing here. And for instance, I-, I think it's like this great coincidence that here they're talking about um, the Bacchic frenzy that this inspiration can can cause. And um, of course, on the last meeting, we, <laughs> we spent some time talking about Bacchic frenzy in regards to love. Um, but love is the emotion behind doing apparently philosophy and getting to the truth of things. And apparently at some point there is some backache frenzy and someone commented how like, I forgot, I think it was maybe Andre who commented on how like when he first got into philosophy, he sort of experienced a kind of maybe frenziness, mental frenziness. Uh, I, I think the dialogue is about maybe inspiration and the way it works and what it looks like and where it comes from. And it could be applied to philosophy. I think it is being suggested, like just slightly, as so many things are in these dialogues, that it's, it could be applied to philosophy itself. And, and let's wrap up here, just some, some aspects of this I thought were interesting, is that the chain that's being described isn't just a chain of like information. I mean, that's not like, that could be kind of like, you know, ho-hum, <laughs> like obviously, but it's being described as a chain of enthusiasm or a chain of enthusiasts. It's again, this feeling that's related to what was um, described last in, in their last meetings, I guess, on, on the symposium about um, love, that, you know, philosophy is not just some, you know, logic chopping thing that, you know, any sort of machine or any uh, abacus or whatever could do. But, you know, it requires a kind of um, a directionality or some orientation to, you know, the good itself or truth itself that generates a kind of energy or enthusiasm. So that's the way it's being described, it's a kind of energy. I think when Plato is writing these dialogues, I think he does sort of actually maybe even quite consciously sees his mission as creating this chain um, in the way the, the dialogues themselves are sort of charged with energy in that the aporia that keeps us wondering. There's a kind of like charge there. At least this is my, per- I haven't really gotten into this before, but my, one of my personal readings of these dialogues in general is that a lot of them end on a point 
which is actually about a kind of passing the baton. I think I actually I think this has come up and maybe in the Prologoris and other ones, but I think the very ending of these dialogues is often about passing the baton of philosophy. And it's not an accident either that like Plato always uses the words or the mouth of Socrates to express his thoughts. So it's it is sort of like consciously passing on a baton from Socrates from his writing and then with the aporia and so the endings to the audience and Plato hoping that we will continue carrying on this activity of the pursuit of goodness and truth, you know, into the future generations. So I I think there's actually quite maybe even conscious, yeah, quite conscious, quite conscious understanding here of that. And I really like the way you use that energy analogy because it it does tie to that sort of magnetism and this passing of uh, thought from one level to another as if through some sort of energy. And maybe it's the energy of philosophy, as you say. It, I think it was a really interesting way of tying it together. And maybe, again, it's that idea of dialectic that in the passing of energy between souls and their, their exchange of words and thoughts, that's the dialectic. And maybe the dialectic is some sort of energy that uh, that comes out where they're looking for the first principle in exchanging these thoughts and ideas. They're looking for the first principle. And is there a first principle in what Homer writes would be an interesting question. He doesn't get into that, but maybe it's this whole process of the dialectic between the, the listeners, the, the representative and the representative of the representatives. Uh, somehow we have to find out, you know, what it is that they're really talking about. So yeah, really interesting thought, really interesting thought. Thank you. And we'll go to Mario. Yes, I just want uh, I just want to tell Darren very nice observation. When you notice this one, when Ian says uh, somehow you touch my soul with your words, Socrates, a very nice observation, and it's really important. This one, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. And we'll see that actually in in the reading that's coming up. And so maybe I, I can do this reading. And again, this is. Socrates and Ion. I don't know if anybody would like to read Ion or Socrates. Uh, I could read one or both. Sure, oh, Steve? Okay, why great. Not? Why not? Okay, all right. Well, thank you. Uh, do you want to do Ion then? Please. Okay. All right. So this is, again, a continuation from this previous section that I just read. Uh, so this is 535b to 536c, and Socrates starts off, Hold on, Ion, tell me this. Don't keep any secrets from me. When you recite epic poetry well and have the most stunning effect on your spectators, either when you sing of Odysseus, how he leapt into the doorway, his identity now obvious to the suitors, and he poured out arrows at his feet, or when you sing of Achilles charging at Hector, or when you sing a pitiful episode about Andromache or Hecuba or Prima, are you at that time in your right mind, or do you get beside yourself? And doesn't your soul, in its enthusiasm, believe that it is present at the actions you describe, whether they're in Ithaca or in Troy or wherever the epic actually takes place. What a vivid example you've given me, Socrates. I won't keep secrets from you. Listen, when I tell you a sad story, my eyes are full of tears. And when I tell a story that's frightening or awful, my hair stands on the ends with fear and my heart jumps. Well, Ion, should we say this man is in his right mind at times like these, when he's at festivals or celebrations, all dressed up in fancy clothes with golden crowns, and he weeps, though he's lost none of his finery, or when he's standing among millions of friendly people and he's frightened, though no one is undressing him or doing him any harm? Is he in his right mind then? Lord, no, Socrates, not at all, to tell the truth. And you know that you have the same effects on most of your spectators too, don't you? I know very well that we do. I look down at them every time from up on the rostrum, 
and they're crying and looking terrified. And as the stories are told, they are filled with amazement. You see, I must keep my wits and pay close attention to them. If I start them crying, I will laugh as they take their money. But if they laugh, I shall cry at having lost their money. And you know that this spectator is the last of the rings, don't you? The ones that I said take their power from each other by virtue of the Heraclean stone. The middle ring is you, the rhapsode or actor, and the first one is the poet himself. The god pulls people's souls through all these, wherever he wants, looping the power down from one to another. And just as if it hung from that stone, there's an enormous chain of choral dancers and dance teachers and assistant teachers hanging off to the sides of the rings that are suspended from the muse. One poet is attached to one muse, another to another. We say he is possessed, and that's near enough for he is held. From these first rings, from the poets, they are attached in their turn and inspired, some from one poet, some from another, some from Orpheus, some from Musaeus, and many are possessed and held from Homer. You are one of them, Ion, and you are possessed from Homer. And when anyone sings the work of another poet, you are asleep and you're lost about what to say. But when any song of that poet is sounded, you are immediately awake. Your soul is dancing and you have plenty to say. You see, it's not because you're a master of knowledge about Homer that you can say what you say, but because you have a divine gift, because you are possessed. So thank you for that, Steve. One of the things here that I thought was interesting was the power that the rhapsode holds over the audience, which uh, Ion describes. He looks down on the audience from the rostrum and he sees them crying. You know, he sees this power that he holds over them. I thought that was an interesting thing in, in this section. Uh, Mario, your thoughts? Yes, uh, I want to ask if somebody can help because I didn't understand why he shall cry. Like if they laugh, he will cry and he will lose money. Why he will lose money? If someone can explain this. It, it's, it's a good question. I, I thought it was because uh, that in the sense that he's laughing, he's happy that he has made them react in the way that he wanted to make them react. And therefore he's earning his money as a rhapsode. He's he's an excellent rhapsode and he's worthy of the money that he's earning. Uh, but if they laugh at him, then he's not worthy. That's the way I understood it as, as meaning, but maybe some others have other ideas. So, so thanks for that question. So anybody can answer that one as we go through. I'll, I'll go to Eleanor next and then to Ernest. Unfortunately, I cannot answer the question. Maybe if somebody wants to answer this question now, I should speak before me. Does anybody have another answer to the question? Uh, yes, it's, mm -hmm. you have, in order to answer that question, you have to read uh, Iliad and Odyssey, because it's Iliad, as you know, it's uh, about the war between uh, uh, Greeks and uh, Trojans, and it's all dramatic. There is no mm -hmm. funny elements in it. So it inspires you to cry, especially if there is one important uh, scene everyone knows, and that's what was very popular, when uh, Hector meets his wife, Andromache, and Andromache holds her son, and he's afraid. And it's very, if you read it, it's very dramatic. It's uh, yeah. everybody cries when they they see that scene. So it's all full of dramatic. There is nothing funny about it. And so if somebody laughs, then they don't understand what's going on because it's all drama. There is nothing comical about it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you, James. Thank you, yeah. Ernest. Yeah. Thank you. So we'll go back to Eleanor then. Thank oh. you, Ernest. Yeah, 
Uh, to me, Ayn is a fool. I thought he is possessed by uh, Homer and is just identifying himself with a trend. His uh, cheap replication and whatever he is enjoying when people is looking at him from the collective, he is basically not enjoying himself. He is enjoying his replication of Homer. So there is no personality in him. Maybe it's a good way to develop, and maybe it's a starting point. Uh, we will see how Ion will develop if he is staying in that stage of mind, state of mind. Um, it's not going to go get anywhere, basically. Thanks for that perspective, Eleanor. I think that's. I mean, maybe when you say that Ion lacks personality and he's a replicator. Uh, maybe that's a sign of what Socrates is saying about the God takes the intellect away and speaks through the person. So Ion has become maybe this empty shell maybe in his presentation. So Ion himself isn't anything like he has nothing special to offer. He's just a, a representative of the artist, a good representative perhaps, but himself, he's bringing nothing new to the scene, I guess is, is maybe if I understand what you're saying is that's an interesting perspective. Yes, I um exactly. Yeah. This is exactly what I would love to say, express. Okay. I have seen and observed it in my artist circles when people claim that they are not interested in other people's art or photography specifically, that they are only <laughs> viewing, them, watching themselves and everything else is disturbing to them. It's a type of narcissism, actually. That's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you. I think that perspective is very helpful. It may be a new perspective on ION that we haven't encountered yet in, in our discussion. So I think that's that's helpful to put that on the table. So thanks for that. And we'll go to Darren and then Steve. So I just have um something just a bit to add on to that uh, question about the, what was the uh, the crying and the laughing <laughs> all about that, <laughs> that passage. I think ION's like, I think it was a bit, maybe a little bit of exaggeration, what Ion said. So I think it maybe it was a deliberately kind of like a joke or maybe a jokey way of saying that. Um, I thought it was pretty amusing when when I read it, at least. And just regarding what Ernest was really helpfully telling us earlier about how, you know, you're not supposed to laugh when <laughs> at Homer's poetry. So it reminded me, actually, that of what Plato wrote wrote at the end of the uh, symposium about you know everyone was falling asleep at the symposia you know it was like 5 a.m or something and socrates is still going and trying to engage him in an argument of why like the greatest poets have to be both um tragedists and or people who write both tragedy and comedy like you, ha you have to have both tragedy and comedy in order to be you know amongst the greatest um and so i just realized just given what Ernest said i just realized that might be a critique of homer as well there um although like and, you know, at that point, I, I forgot what they said about it, but last week, but anyway, I, I thought it was just like a general comment about what a good life for the whole of life must consist in, you know, it, you have to, you have to be sensitive to both aspects or else you're only sort of living like you're li only living in half the metaphysical universe or whatever. But yeah, I just realized that, yeah, that might be um, a, a critique of Homer too. And um, yeah, I, I, I thought I had never thought about that, but anyway, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> And that, and that's a good thought, actually. It's um, 
hadn't thought about that, but yeah, if, if Homer is more about the drama and the tragedy, um, then yeah, maybe life is not all about that. So, you know, maybe there's a need to present other aspects too. So Homer is just one perspective. Maybe is that what's that, that saying? Yes. Yeah. And maybe the, maybe the little last thought I had was maybe like Plato, because apparently I think, I feel like Socrates might've actually made that argument. This is why Plato sort of threw that in there just sort of randomly at the end. Mm -hmm. And maybe Plato's just himself trying to live up to that, but he doesn't want to think he doesn't know if he has, but you know, cause he clearly looks up to Socrates and maybe cause we, we can't forget like Plato himself is a dramatist and writing and writing in the creative form too. So maybe he, he himself is trying to live up to uh, whatever Socrates argued about the need to combine both tragedy and comedy in the life. Yeah. An interesting thought too, about Plato being a dramatist. So if Homer is a dramatist in a sense, then maybe Plato's kind of like Homer in a way, but yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Steve. I didn't know if you uh, you said earlier you wanted to get to the part about where he talks about uh, being in general. I can hold my comments till after you got to that if you uh, yeah. wanted to go over that. Sure. Yeah, that, that'd be good, actually. And, well, I let me just say, I, the next reading I selected was uh, from 540E to 542B. The part that Ion says that he's a general comes just before that. Let me just see. I'm just looking for that section. It's, okay, yeah, here it is. Let me just, maybe I'll just read that a little bit first. So this is at around 540D. Um, he, Socrates says, and what a man should say if he's a general to encourage his troops. Ion says, yes, that's the sort of thing a rhapsode would know. Socrates says, what? Is a rhapsode's profession the same as a general's? Ion says, well, I certainly would know what a general should say. Socrates says, perhaps that's because you're also a general by profession, Ion. I mean, if you were somehow both a horseman and a cithera player at the same time, you would know good riders from bad. But suppose I asked you, which profession teaches you good horsemanship? The one that makes you a horseman or the one that makes you a cithera player? The horseman, I'd say, says Ion. Socrates replies, then, if you also knew good cithera players from bad, the profession that taught you that would be the one which made you a cithera player and not the one that made you a horseman. Wouldn't you agree? Ion says, yes. Socrates says, now, since you know the business of being a general, do you know this by being a general or by being a good rhapsode? So this is where uh, the reading starts here. And I don't know, Steve, if you'd like to read uh, Ion again? Yes. All right. Thank you. Yeah. So that's that's where I just ended there. So where Socrates says, now, since you know the business of a general, do you know this by being a general or by being a good rhapsode? We don't think there's any difference. What? Are you saying there's no difference? On your view, is there one profession for rhapsodes and generals, or two? One, I think. So anyone who is a good rhapsode turns out to be a good general, too. Certainly, Socrates. It also follows that anyone who turns out to be a good general is a good rhapsode, too? No, this time I don't agree. But you do agree to this. Anyone who is a good rhapsode is a good general, too. I quite agree. And aren't you the best rhapsode in Greece? By far, Socrates. Are you also a general, Ion? Are you the best in Greece? Certainly, Socrates. That too, I learned from Homer's poetry. Then why in heaven's name, Ion, when you're both the best general and the best rhapsode in Greece, do you go around the country giving rhapsodies but not commanding troops? Do you really think Greece needs a rhapsode who is crowned with a golden crown and does not need a general? 
Socrates, my city, Ephesus, is governed and commanded by you, by Athens. We don't need a general. Besides, neither your city nor Sparta would choose me for a general. You think they're good enough for, for that themselves? Ion, you're superb. Don't you know Apollodorus of Sisychus? Uh, what does he do? He's a foreigner who has often been chosen by Athens to be their general. And Phenosthenes of Andros and Heraclides of Clazomene, they're also foreigners. They've demonstrated that they are worth noticing, and Athens appoints them to be generals of other sort or other sorts of officials. And do you think that this city that makes such appointments would not select Ion of Ephesus and honor him if they thought he was worth noticing? Why? Aren't you people from Ephesus Athenians of long standing? And isn't Ephesus a city that is second to none? But you, Ion, you're doing me wrong if what you say is true, that what enables you to praise Homer is knowledge or mastery of a profession. You assured me that you knew many lovely things about Homer. You promised to give me a demonstration. But you're cheating me. You're a long way from giving a demonstration. You aren't even willing to tell me what it is that you're so wonderfully clever about, although I've been begging you for ages. Really, you're just like Proteus. You twist up and down and take many different shapes till finally you've escaped me altogether by turning yourself into a general, so as to avoid proving how wonderfully wise you are about Homer. If you're really a master of your subject, and if, as I said earlier, you're cheating me of the demonstration you promised about Homer, then you're doing me wrong. But if you're not a master of your subject, if you're possessed by a divine gift from Homer, so that you make many lovely speeches about a poet without knowing anything, as I said about you, then you're not doing me wrong. So choose. How do you want us to think of you, as a man who does wrong, or as someone divine? There's a great difference, Socrates. It's much lovelier to be but divine. Then that is how we think of you, Ion, the lovelier way. It's as someone divine, and not as master of a profession, that you are a singer of Homer's praises. And there ends the dialogue. Um, so yeah, it was. I thought that was a really interesting section. The way he puts it, that reference to Proteus, uh, the translator of the dialogue noted that Proteus was a servant of Poseidon who could shape shift to avoid answering questions. That's that reference to Proteus in there. So now, I mean, maybe this is quite a characterization. Does Ion really think that he's the best general, or is Socrates? or Plato trying to make a point by uh, dramatizing this. But, you know, maybe we can think of people who, like Ion, uh, maybe not as convinced, but do think themselves possessed of knowledge of a profession or craft based on the words that they've read rather than actual practice of it. So, uh, you know, maybe we can try to draw parallels to that. So, yeah, any your your thoughts on that? Uh, Steve, did you have thoughts on that? Yeah, a couple. Um, I agree completely with what you said that I think perhaps it's an over-dramatization by Plato to make a point. But but I think there's, uh, you know, as anything like that, there's some some kernel of, uh, of reality that caused that. It's a well-known uh, trope that really great generals, Julius Caesar, uh, Winston Churchill, Patton, you know, those are examples that I know of, but, you know, I've heard it the reference many times that uh, the great generals, they're all proficient at the military arts, but they're also uh, often tortured souls that have to, you know, stay awake all night reading poetry in order to them, you know, because of the weight of what they're carrying, you know, if they're not really fully aware of what they're doing, it's like any fool can 
lead a, a, a battle, you know, but to, to have the full comprehension of, of what your decisions mean and to uh, totally weigh it, there is a trope that, uh, you know, great generalship, it's not that you, if you're a great poet, you can be a great general. It's more that if you're a great general, you often also might be an a poet or an appreciator of uh, poetry to inspire you. And that, that's an interesting thing too. It makes me think of what I said in the beginning or in my introduction about poets kind of repeating maybe memes of historical behavior. And so to the extent that a leader, whether it's a general or any other sort of leader, kind of understands these memes and understands what motivates people, then maybe that is actually helpful. But does that, yeah, I mean, does that make a person a great general, I guess, is is the question. So I think that that's actually an interesting connection there, that there is some value to leaders through understanding these things. And I guess probably a lot more value back then to a leader to understand poetry than it would be now. But again, you know, if a poet is somebody who motivates people through beautiful words, then we have different forms of poetry now than they did back then. There's certainly people out there motivating others with their words. So that was a great point. Thank you. Um, and then Eleanor and Darren. I draw a little bit parallels uh, for recent life. And I think through knowing things doesn't mean one is necessarily great at things. Let's say if I watch on YouTube how to build a house, it doesn't mean I can build a house. It just means I know how to build a house. Nowadays, many people function like that and it gets rewarded because if um, I have following, it means it's kind of like a profession on its own. Orator is an earlier narrator, orator, and now it's um, YouTuber or blogger. Let's say I know things, I propagate things. It, it creates kind of like, it doesn't mean necessarily that I live that lifestyle. If I know a lot about certain religions, but I'm not practicing them, it would just mean I'm not, still not uh, practicing. So I don't know, it's uh, important to have ions, but I'm not sure how much, let's say if I will be a fan of iron and I start practicing through him propagating certain things, then I maybe get somewhere. And maybe if iron wouldn't exist, I wouldn't discover things. So um, yeah, it has two ends. Indeed, yes, everything has two limits and it's hard to choose between them in, in Plato. But yeah, I think that was a really interesting observation that you made about YouTube and that connection to modern life where there are not rhapsodes, but people who rhapsodize or expound on these subjects. And the interesting thing about YouTube is they make a lot of money from it, some of these people. Yeah. And and so it, does that make them, in a sense, modern sophists earning money from expounding these ideas in YouTube? And we know, I mean, we, we know so many examples of, especially young people now are driven to do some pretty damaging things, I think, by these YouTube influencers. The words and the presentation on YouTube are powerful. I mean, they do drive people to do things that maybe if they had thought about them twice, they wouldn't do them. But that's a really good example and, and certainly driven by the motivation, the modern motivation to make money from this. And and I guess, you know, Ion made money from his his rhapsodies too. So 
Yeah, we are therefore all ions. Yeah. Rep yeah, representatives of representatives. Yes, in our own name. Yeah. And maybe there's even more with technology now, maybe there's even more rings than those two rings that uh, Socrates mentioned in the, the magnet analogy. So, yeah. That's great. Thank you. And uh, Darren? I really liked what uh, Steve was saying about this uh, point about the general and Ion seeming to think that there is some very close connection between being a general and um, his own art. And I just found this really curious because Ion was happy to just go along with Socrates' logic. Yeah, okay, there's a distinction between this, <laughs> between those arts and <laughs> and what I'm doing. Uh, but then when it comes to generalship, <laughs> like he's like, no, no, no. Like he can definitely do this and he definitely knows all about it because he knows Homer. I mean, if Ion's followed the logic until up to this point, but he's stuck with generalship. I, I think, you know, he's probably wrong about generalship because, you know, if, if we agree, at least if we agree with Socrates' logic about the other technical arts, then Ion must also be wrong about this one. But I just think it, it is interesting, though, that Ion seems so stuck on this multiple points. He's like, no, it just doesn't make like, I think he's just responding with his intuition here. And I wonder, though, if there's some truth to that intuition that Ion has, that um, there's something in the art of generalship that's related to his own art of speaking. Ions are speaking beautifully and speaking well. And I think there might indeed be a kind of connection, right? Like the, the importance of, you know, if you're commanding troops, the importance of, you know, using language well and inspiring your troops to fight. I mean, I, I even think maybe someone like Zelensky maybe has this art of being good at rhetoric. And of course, Zelensky was an actor. So he would actually be versed in maybe a similar art as Ion. And you know, he actually got to apply it. I, I think, you know, Zelensky could also be kind of as a virtuous figure too. So. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different subject. So I, yeah, I, I really liked what uh, Steve's thoughts on that. And um, I just want to bring in my own thing I noticed at this ending here that I thought it was interesting when I got to the end of the dialogue, there was no aporia. <laughs> like so many, uh, like almost all of Plato's dialogues end in a kind of, you know, aporia where, you know, there's sort of irresolution. But I wonder if, here so i think we could just accept that okay for whatever reason this dialogue doesn't end in aporia but i think you, we still might be able to read an aporia into it so he says socrates the very last line then that is how we think of you ion the lovelier way it's as someone divine and not as a master of a profession that you are a singer of homer's praises so maybe that sounds conclusive but maybe it is an aporia at least to audiences at the time who think that by knowing homer they like have all the wisdom they need and you know they know everything kind of like ion so maybe by saying that you know socrates is sort of slyly saying he doesn't actually have knowledge then you know it forces the audiences at the time to think oh wait maybe although they love and cherish homer and know homer and know homer very well and intimately has memorized all the lines maybe that doesn't mean they actually have knowledge about anything maybe it's still an aporia but you have to sort of understand the context in which readers might be taking this up <laughs> One last thing is here, like at the, near the end here, he says, this is a question that Socrates poses. How do you want us to think of you, Ion, as a man who does wrong or as someone divine? I think this is such an amazing way of encapsulating this key question of this dialogue, but also a question that sort of troubles Plato through many dialogues, which is, you know, the status of poetry or art. Ion is either doing wrong or someone divine. <laughs> like, this is such a forced choice here. So I feel like, well, I don't know if it's a forced choice, but it's like an interesting way of putting a choice here. 
and you know poetry could either lead you wrong or you know if you don't want that it's at least something divine like at least it has a status of divinity even um if it might be leading us wrong i don't know i i find it such a provocative way of putting this question that seems to yeah come up in so many yeah. dialogues for plato and this question that comes up that's a great observation and and definitely to call out those two extremes a man who does wrong versus divine i mean that that's pretty much the extremes right so Maybe it is a form of aporia for Ion, who doesn't really understand, I think, where Socrates has taken him uh, with this. So uh, I don't think Ion admits that he's wrong. So maybe that's the aporia. It's it's in the, the principal character. So yeah, thank you for I, that. Yeah. Ion just says one choice is more beautiful than the other, but he doesn't actually <laughs> seem to ascent. It just, yeah. he just says it's much lovelier to be thought divine. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, we just have a few minutes left, so we'll take Steve and then Ernest, and uh, this has been a great discussion. Steve. First off, thanks to Darren for bringing in the Aporia. That's, I wouldn't have seen that otherwise. That's a great, great point. Uh, this is going to be quite a reach by analogy. So going to the idea of a great general, if we're looking at, I'm talking world-changing, uh, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, what sort of events changed the world? There's a book called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test about uh, the 70s in Northern California and the Grateful Dead concerts and psychedelics and Eastern spiritualism being introduced and all those things coming together in, in that time and place. And, um, you know, is it a little coincidence that the technological uh, revolution of uh, the internet and cell phones uh, also generated from that area. Uh, Steve Jobs is a good example. He definitely uh, credits all those sort of things as, as part of his inspiration and uh, you know how he was able to see uh, new ways of being. And that whole area was also very uh, fertile for quantum mechanics and Bell's theories, things that uh, were not widely accepted throughout the rest of the world and, and, and really had a big influence on the uh, technological aspects too, but quite a reach, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, just something I saw interesting. Yeah, it's actually a great observation about Steve Jobs in particular, because it makes me think he went to India, I think, before he had the, the great revelation about Apple. And I think he, he spent some time meditating you know, in India, like, you know, a very deep sort of meditation. I think that was the case. So yeah, there, there's some sort of reaching out to some broader sphere, you know, the individual soul is reaching out to something and then discovering something in that reaching out process. So yeah, that's a really good observation. Thank you. And Ernest. Yes, uh, we can uh, compare Ion to many uh, Hollywood actors who portray different uh, generals or presidents and they get into the role they portray them so lividly so real so they get inspired like even after they finish their role they still continue to be playing that role and that's what uh, ion was believing that he can represent general he was yeah. so intuitive to it he was so emotional about it that he could do it. He believed in himself that he can be a general based on the inner inspiration that he had. And it actually, like uh, Darren was saying, it happened to Zelensky. Zelensky, in his uh, movie, 
he became from a teacher. He was elected as a president and he played the role of the president before becoming actually the president. Mm-hmm. So that's possible can be achieved. That's reality. Very interesting examples. And, and yeah, these representations are very powerful. Sometimes we sometimes we identify historical characters with the actors who presented them. Yeah, They're very, very interesting. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, so yeah, we just literally have a few minutes left. So Darren and then Eleanor. Regarding what Ernest said about the actors can, yeah, getting really into the performance. And I think, you know, that's obviously a very good thing for a theater and for, you know, Hollywood actors. But I think it's the bad thing when it gets confused with, you know, the actual knowledge. And I actually think there's an interesting phenomenon about this where Hollywood actors sometimes like blurt out about like real world subjects or think they can be like leaders in the subject or a politician or whatever. And they turn up being absolutely terrible at it or they say really dumb things, but they think they're an expert. So I think that might that might be really that phenomenon. Like <laughs> there are. So I think, and I think this dialogue is actually, you know, a kind of warning about confusing those things. Um, it doesn't actually put that in explicit terms. Like this is what this dialogue is about, but I think it's implicit here. So I raised my hand because I have this final thought about this aporia. I still think about, so I'm actually just tying this back in with my previous thought about how there could be also reflection about philosophy and the role of inspiration here too. And how it's like a, you know, there's a chain of enthusiasm and all that. If this dialogue is an aporia for an audience, so it would leave them maybe with a puzzle about, well, they don't actually have knowledge. So like, how do we actually gain knowledge besides just reading more Homer or just reading Homer over and over and over again? How would one get knowledge? And so that would be an aporia for the audience. Like, what is knowledge? And of course, Plato wrote an entire different dialogue about what is knowledge. So I think just like so many of these aporias, like, end with, I used the word earlier, like a charge, you know, it keeps you wondering and makes you want to go back and think and like, did they do something wrong or did, you know, or where did they go wrong or what, what could an answer be to this puzzle at the end of the dialogue? I think it's interesting happening with Ion though, because if Ion is fallen into this aporia, it's almost like Plato is transferring the kind of enthusiasm or energy that Ion had towards Homer to philosophy itself it's like it's like a transfer of that energy that charge to what plato wants to where plato wants that energy which is invested in philosophy which for him of course is about ultimately discovering what the good is and um the con the form of the good and even that is related to that metaphor right of the chain in in the sense that this is another way it's related to that metaphor because Mm -hmm where in that metaphor of the rings the first ring is like something heavenly is god something heavenly but of course you know plato i don't know if he, i don't think he actually believes in those gods like but that's a different question <laughs> for another day uh he didn't believe, believe in the greek gods and apparently a lot of people stopped believing them around plato's time already um but it is the good itself is often described as still as something heavenly as something from something at least in a different metaphysical domain that we we also have a sort of a foot in yeah, so I think like it's interesting way he's transferring the mm-hmm. energy. Like if Ion's starting to be puzzled, then you know he's and, and Ion said he is he himself is inspired by or moved his yeah. soul is moved by Socrates' words. So it, we sort of what we actually see at the end is not just an aporia, but a transfer yeah. of the energy or the baton yeah. from poetry to philosophy. So it's yeah. a slide way in which it seems to be exhibiting That's- that. That, that's interesting. Yeah, it makes me think that maybe that stone in the middle of those rings for Socrates is the stone of the good, the true and the beautiful. And maybe that's what he's trying to draw people towards understanding. So, yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, Eleanor, uh, take us to a conclusion. Mm, 
conclusion is that we are all ions and um, it's very important to believe in things. Just don't get lost in your belief or in whatever you are believing in mm. because um, sometimes things are inspiring and aspiring. One is not really, um, cannot really interpret nowadays where, with what intent or way something is coming from. So one can be on a psychotic uh, trip, wrong trip, and uh, let's hope everything turns out well. Yeah, I think an actor actually is a profession on its own. It's in no means represents, uh, Ian is an actor in this case, because actor is committing to play a role. Actor is aware of what he, she is doing and uh, how to interpret actors are actually using the internal and external knowledge of things to represent something they're playing or someone they're playing. So I do think Ian, it, I, I do think we do actors wrong if we compare them with Ian. But actors are very important. But Ian, we are all Ians and we need inspiration. We just need maybe to research and follow the right inspiration. And only by doing, improving and making mistakes we can move on because without making mistakes, we don't learn to fail. And we have all to learn from failures. This is it. That is a lovely conclusion, Eleanor. Thank you for that. I think that's, uh, we are all ions. I love that. And, and to recognize the ion inside all of us, the one that can get inspired, but the one that can maybe get carried away and to retain some restraint and self-control and that sort of thing. I, I love that. That That's great. And, and yeah, and learning by mistakes. I think that's, that's so important. Yeah. So thank you. That's, I mean, talk about a good discussion. And I think that was a really good way to, to wrap it up. I think there's, you know, certainly Ion was a caricature, but to understand the meaning of all of that, I think we have driven some very important points here and I'll continue to think about that magnet that stone in the middle of the rings as being philosophy and maybe that's what we're aiming at is to get that to resonate instead of some representation so i thank everybody for participating this is great there's one more session scheduled for this season of plato's pod before we take a summer break but i'm going to do some more discussions in the summer they're going to be less structured than these uh, but they'll be on taking specific points from plato's dialogues and bringing them into the current era. And I think the first one that I want to do is what I read on Phaedrus and bring that into a discussion about modern technology. So we'll do that uh, in July, but the next session will be the final sort of session on the structured discussions on the dialogues. And I'm going to have to change the regular time for that just because there's a conflict, uh, but we'll do Crito next time. It's a, it's a short dialogue. It's 10 pages, so it's easy, or at least it's easy to read. I'll, I'll post the the time change uh, shortly and hopefully everybody can attend and it would be great to continue this discussion and see maybe we can make some more connections from symposium and ion and all of the things that we've discussed this season with the crito so uh, looking forward to seeing everybody in two weeks hopefully and i will end the recording now but invite anybody who would like to stay online for an unrecorded casual half hour discussion on plato or philosophy in general Wish everybody a, a good two weeks and uh, see you back for the program.